and Elijah showed up and Moses, and why, why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses and Elijah are like synonymous in some respects for the phrase, the law and the prophets. Now, because you're all good Bible scholars, you'll all know that the law and the prophets was a common way of referring to what we know as the Old Testament. Usually it was the law prophets and the writings. That was so that you could get the Psalms and the Proverbs in as well. So, um, so it was the law and the prophets was a common way of referring to the Old Testament. So Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, kind of the preeminent prophet as the, as the short. So it was like synonymous for saying the law and the prophets. So having Moses and Elijah appear alongside Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was essentially their way of saying, this guy, Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Everything that the Old Testament has been pointing towards is pointing towards this person of Jesus. That's the significance of the Mount Transfiguration moment. But I was also kind of intrigued, like, why Elijah? Why not Isaiah or Jeremiah or Malachi or Haggai? That's a good name, eh? Why not, why not one, of these, one of these other fellas? Like, like we've actually, if you look at the Old Testament... They wrote far more. Like, you know the longest book in the Bible? It's not Psalms, by the way. I know you're all thinking it was Psalms. It's not Psalms. Who knows? Jeremiah. Longest book in the Bible is Jeremiah. And, and so you go, why isn't Jeremiah like the one that's up there with Moses? Here's why. Because Moses was such a, you know, gave the law and was such a significant Old Testament figure. Think about it. Moses was the one who led God's people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. He was the one who, up on Mount Sinai, you know, God gave the Ten Commandments, established this covenant relationship with God's people. He was very, you know, right there at the beginning of like forming this people of God and the covenantal relationship that would exist between God and His people, Right? About 400 years later, Elijah shows up when that covenantal relationship, that covenantal identity was at a bit of a tipping point, to be honest. It was at risk of being completely lost because by then the nation of Israel had split into the north and the south. In the south, you had two tribes staying around Jerusalem, Judah, with a, and, and, and they still centered worship in the temple in Jerusalem. They were still centered on Yahweh as their God, whereas the northern tribes, most of whom began to like let go of that and compromise their worship of Yahweh as the one and only true God, and instead began to worship other gods or other idols, in particular, Baal. Baal was a big one, and that's where we see. So 400 years later, Elijah shows up and, and, and basically reestablishes, calls the people of God who, who were drifting in their worship and following of God, calls them back to honor God, calls their attention back to that. So th- that's why Elijah is so significant. He's the one essentially calling them back to reestablish. And then we have the big showdown. You'll hear about that next week on, in you know, 1 Kings chapter 18 on Mount Carmel. Uh, David will preach that message next week. So you want to come back for that one. That's a, that's a good one. So why all of this though? <clears throat> and let me just kind of bridge 
uh, for us a little bit, the, the, the kind of journey. Because the last few weeks have been I've, been, I've been so pleased hearing the, the encouragement and the, the feedback coming from many people said, man, that Overflow series was so inspiring and encouraging and loved hearing, you know, how God's worked in and through people's lives and the different stories and that was, that was excellent. And, uh, but what happens when it seems like God doesn't show up and work in amazing ways? What happens when it seems like uh, actually, things aren't going so well and it's really hard and it's difficult and experiencing a lot of pain and hardship in life. What happens when, you know, th- those things are going on in our lives? And, you know, I started scanning and paying attention a little more closely to the things that we have been praying for as a church over the last few weeks. And over the last few weeks, these, these kinds of experiences that have been going on in your life, and in the lives of your family and your friends or, or in our neighbors and our community, these things have been showing up on the prayer list and the, 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 the requests to be, to be joining in prayer. Things like praying with parents whose kids have walked away from God, asking that they would return to Christ. And, and, and for some, it was especially now that they are raising kids of their own. Uh, so essentially grandparents praying for that, you know, praying for marriage issues, several couples who are struggling or, or, or you know, one, one who's like, uh, you know, wondering whether they should stay or go and what does that all look like? Praying for those who are looking for jobs and feeling really frustrated with the job search, like that it's just not going well. Praying for so many folks who are facing increased financial pressures and stress at the moment. Praying for those who are fighting depression, anxiety and loneliness praying for those who are or have loved ones struggling with addictions to drugs, to alcohol, to all sorts of various ones, praying for those who have lost a loved one recently, whether it's a partner or a child, a parent or a grandparent, and the grieving process that they now find themselves in, or praying for parents who are struggling to parent their kids well because they so easily get reactive and fly off the handle, lose, feel like they're losing control and they're just not sure what to do sometimes. And then a lot of health needs, praying for all of those uh, currently unwell and significantly so, cancers of all kinds and mental health and insomnia and diabetes and brain tumors and seizures, you, you, you know, I mean, all of these things. And these prayer requests all paint a very real picture for us of life, don't they? That life doesn't always go the way that we would hope or expect. It doesn't. Like, in, in fact, oftentimes we know the reality that if, if you're breathing, if you're taking breath in your lungs, then you're confronted with the reality that life is painful. Life gets hard physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually, and no one is exempt from it. It's, it's a matter, it's a fact of life, right? No one's, it doesn't matter whether you're young or whether you're old. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or whether you're poor. It doesn't matter whether you're following Christ or running from Christ. No one's exempt from the hardships of life. And friends, this series, we want to pay attention to how we navigate the good times and the bad times. How we navigate in a culture that is forming and shaping and trying to condition us in ways that are counter to the kingdom of God, counter to the ways of Jesus. And instead, we need to adopt a counter formation that is true to the way of Jesus. And that's the context that sits behind this whole 
series of four weeks journeying through Elijah. So I hope you've got your Bibles. We're going to open up to 1 Kings chapter 17. So turn there. If you're using one of the green church Bibles, I believe it's page 245. You can open up to page 245 in one of those green ones near you, and we'll dive into our text this morning. But why don't we pray quickly before we do? Lord, we thank you that you are always and everywhere present. But we just welcome you even more, uh, especially into this moment. God, we seek your tangible manifest presence here now. Come and meet with us and minister to us. We know that your word is alive and it is active. It is always moving, shaping, forming us. And so together we just say, come Holy Spirit, open our minds and our hearts, soften our hearts, that we might hear and receive all that you would have for us from your word this morning. Make our souls to be good soil in which the seed of your word can take root and grow to produce a kingdom harvest in and through our lives. We pray this in the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus, our Lord. And we all said together, Amen. First Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, say that ten times fast, eh? Here we are, we got Elijah, remember? Law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Elijah, an influential prophet, we've already talked about this, you know, from the, who lived about the 9th century BC during the reigns of King Ahab and King Ahaziah up in the northern tribes of Israel. You've heard about those two fellows, right? Ahaziah was Ahab's son. Uh, and, and, and Elijah's name literally means, my God is Yahweh. It's right there in the name. Eli in the Hebrew literally means my God. And the Yah is like a shorthand for Yahweh, or the name that God, you know, like revealed to Moses at the burning bush as Yahweh. So, my name is, uh, my God is Yahweh. That's what Elijah literally means. And if Elijah means Yahweh is my God, then you could say Ahab means anything is my God. Because if you read in verse, uh, if you go back one verse into chapter 16, verse 30, it says, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. That sounds a bit harsh, eh? But then if you're a thinking person, you go, well, how bad were those before him? Were they really that bad? Or was he just like a little bit bad? And, you know, they weren't that bad after all. And, you know, no, no, if you look back, they were, they were, they were proper, proper evil. You know, there, there was a legacy. There was a generational pattern of evilness that had kind of gone down. You don't have to read, you just skim back a few verses in the, in the end of chapter 16 there. You'll see, you know, Omri and then his dad before him did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, you know, like he's like, you see, you got this generational pattern, this cycle of, of bad going on. He basically, Ahab's the one who set up and established a worship center for Baal in Samaria. You know, you know when in, in Jerusalem, they had the temple where they're worshiping Yahweh, the one and only true God in, in, in Samaria. King Ahab, who's supposed to be in covenantal relationship with the people, you know, with, with the living God and leading the people of God to follow him. No, no, no. he's saying, let's, let's establish a worship center here for Baal. They, he sets up these Asherah poles. Asherah was known as like a pagan god of fertility uh, and provoking pagan worship. He married a woman by the name of Jezebel, which if you go read a little bit about her, you'll discover she's not really known for her upstanding character. Um, in a nutshell, Ahab is unaware of just how much he has compromised 
culturally conditioned. He's adopted the ways of the cultures surrounding him. And, and it's like he's just, uh, you know, the big word for it might be syncretism. Essentially, what that means is he's choosing to worship anyone and anything that promises or off, offers some kind of opportunity for the good life or human flourishing, right? So it's like, you know, if you, you know like, like when people talk about their investment portfolio, if you think about your worship as like an investment portfolio, he's like playing a diverse field. He's like, let's just make our worship investments go like all these different places in hopes that one of those will pay off, right? And it'll bear good dividends. So essentially, that's the way he's, he's living and, and, and playing it out. Uh, but basically, the cultural conditioning had so shaped and formed him. You looked at the generations that have come before him, and, and he's, he's following in their trajectory and in their trends. It's like it has this ability when we are conditioned by our culture to lull us to sleep on the real issues of God, the kingdom of God, and what God is doing in our world. It's like you get into a place spiritually that's the equivalent of like sleepwalking our way through life where you're not fully attuned or aware of what's going on. You might be physically alert, physically drawing breath. You know, you know, might be physically strong, even like Ahab, physically influential, but in God's eyes, spiritually asleep, sound asleep. And so Elijah's first recorded sermon here in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 17 is given to a congregation of one, King Ahab, it's abrupt and it's really brief. In the Hebrew, it's 17 words. Translated into English, it's 25 words. Some of you are saying, hey, Clint, you should take note. Uh, and at its first hearing, it sounds nothing much more than like a weather forecast. Because Elijah says to Ahab in verse 1, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, at first glance, you go, Oh, not the most encouraging news. A bit of rain's important, right? But it's actually a far bigger deal than just talking about whether or not it's going to rain. This is a huge threat. This is, this is setting the stage for a significant confrontation that will come in chapter 18. It actually, we, we won't even touch on it today. David will pick it up next week. But this is, this is him setting the stage right here and now. Elijah is setting the stage right here and now. Because here's the deal. Baal was known as the Lord of the Reigns, the God of the Reigns. So basically, Elijah's message, his short little sermon, is challenging Ahab to say, oh, you think Baal's Lord and control of the rain? No, 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 you got that wrong. In fact, it's not going to rain again. It's not going to rain. And so he sets the, sets the stage here uh, for, for, for what's to come. Then it says, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, Turn eastward and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. Don't you love how sometimes God gets real pragmatic? You know, really just detailed and gives these clear instructions and clear... It shows that God is, God is not just this ethereal, you know, like kind of out there where you're trying to pick up the vibe of the thing in order to follow God through. No, 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 no. He's like really clear. He's like, no, go east to the Kerith Ravine. That's where you need to go, you know? Uh, and, and it's like real specific. God gets involved in the nitty-gritty of life. You know, He gets involved in the details and He knows the specifics. Uh, and I love that. And, and, and basically what He's saying is, hey, Elijah, uh, look, you've just challenged the entire belief system of the king. So it's probably a good idea for you to 
get out of Dodge. You better go hide. You know, you better go, you gotta go hang out somewhere. So, so go to the Kareth Ravine. Because here's the deal, here's the significance of the message Elijah has just delivered. Basically, he's saying, the God you're worshipping, Baal, is impotent. Asherah, this God of fertility, this cult of fertility, barren. None of these will, will save you. No, it's not going to work. Basically, he's saying it's all a lie. And, and basically, the drought would advertise the barrenness of this Baal and Asherah cult of fertility, which is what it was. Verse 4, it says, God says to Elijah, you will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you. Oh, mate, come on. Think about what this tells us about God. Who do you know? that can order the ravens about. This is our God. Come on. And, 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 and all you good Bible scholars who know the Old Testament, this should be ringing some, ringing some, like giving echoes of familiarity for you. You go, oh, we've seen this before, right? We've heard this before. This was, this was part of Moses' story, remember? When Moses led God's people out of Egypt and they're in the, they're in the wilderness and they're crying out to God for uh, provision and God gives them manna from heaven and quail to eat. He provides water in the wilderness. That, that manna from heaven literally... It translated means like, what is this? Uh, they, they couldn't quite tell what it was, but God provided food for them in the wilderness, miraculous provision. This is an, a deliberate echo where God's showing the exact same thing, that He is God and not Baal, because Baal's going to prove un, unfaith, unable to provide, but instead He's saying, look, I'm the one who can provide. Verse 5, so Elijah did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Oh, isn't that lovely? Don't we love these, like, like these flowing brook seasons of life? They're amazing, right? Isn't it refreshing when you experience that sense of shalom and wholeness and, and completeness, like the way things are supposed to be, the flowing brook seasons of life, when it's just shalom with your friends and it's just shalom in your marriage and shalom with your kids or shalom at work even, shalom, you know, in your finances or shalom in your ministry, shalom in your health. You know, you go, oh, these flowing brook seasons are just the best. The ravens, they're flying in fresh groceries. The ravine is filled with this crystal clear water, those flowing brook seasons of life. And if I'm honest with you, friends, the majority of my prayer life is shaped by those flowing brook seasons of life. Either saying, oh God, thank you for this flowing brook season of life, right? Or, God, get me back to that flowing brook season of life. You know, why can't I be back by that? It's so often what shapes my prayer life. But as great as they are and as thankful as I am for them, if I was really honest with you, friends, I'd have to say that I've found them to be the times when I'm actually the most spiritually lethargic or apathetic. Turns out comfort and convenience have not been the healthiest stimulants for spiritual growth in my life. As a matter of fact, if I was blatantly honest, it's alongside the flowing brook where I've found pride, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, judgmentalism, and entitlement to grow up in my soul. Anyone else? 
And it turns out God seems to value something different. In fact, God values something beyond just my comfort and convenience. It seems He's often working on a different agenda. So we see in verse 7, it says, Sometime later, the brook dried up. Because there had been no rain in the land, then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. You see it, friends? The, the flowing brook dries up even for the Elijahs of this world. I mean, you'd expect the flowing brook to dry up for King Ahab, right? He's the one that's like off worshipping Baal and leading the people astray and doing all that. He's violating God's commands left, right and center. And maybe, maybe, you know, this painfulness of drought and famines might arouse him or waken him up from that kind of sleepwalking uh, reality. But, but what about the guy who's actually living for God and honoring God and listening to God and obeying God? What about the guy who's like wide awake doing God's will in God's way for God's glory? It tells us the brook dries up. In some of his earlier writings, Richard Rohr says this, he says, so God may let us plateau for a while, say between 30 and 40 He'll let you just sit there with your satisfying definition of faith and then God throws us a whammy or a double whammy to get us to go further. If He doesn't, we won't move outside our comfort zone. Unless we're kicked or pulled or shoved, we all take the path of least resistance. Understandably, life is hard. Why would we make it harder on ourselves? We won't move ordinarily unless the old answers don't work anymore. Pain is an activator that forces us to choose between what is important and what is not. And I found that I'm most open and responsive and dependent and leaning in toward Christ when life is hard, when life is painful. The most difficult seasons, when I reflect back on my life, have been actually those seasons that have borne the most spiritual fruit. And I suspect there's no coincidence and, and maybe the same has been true in your own life as well because nothing takes us to the end of ourselves like pain and hardship. Physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, relational pain, pain in all of its multifaceted complexity. And friends, when the, when the brook is flowing and the ravens are providing, then we're absolutely content with the same old answers to the same old questions, aren't we? Why change things? Things are good. Don't rock the boat. But when the brook dries up, when what one author calls uh, God inserting a little controlled trauma, in quotation marks, then we're more likely to pause to think a little bit more deeply to, about those things that really matter the most and those things that don't. We recognize we're not really as, or not nearly as important as we think we are. We recognize we're not nearly as in control as we think we are and we recognize that we actually don't have all the answers, that we're a deeply dependent creatures. I remember one time we learned this uh, 
play in, played out in our own lives uh, when, when Jamie and I, you know, we'd been married for a number of years and I was serving at a church in Indianapolis. I was a youth pastor at this church. We'd been there for six years uh, in Indianapolis and, and, and it hadn't all been flowing brook seasons of life over those six years. In fact, there'd been some really difficult seasons in that time. But the last couple of years there, it was genuine kind of flowing brook kind of season of life. Things were good. Things were going well. And, and in the midst of all of that, uh, like the brook hadn't even dried up, but in the midst of all of that, God called us to leave to go. We had a clear sense of release, like well, we, we need to move on and we didn't even know where to or, or what we were doing and, and so I remember we actually resigned from my position as a step of obedience without really knowing what the next step was and then God led us to go on to further study uh, in, in, in the scheme of things, you know, to go, uh, go to seminary and all that kind of thing um, and so I remember, you know, like, like re- you know, resigning and, and God leading us on to further study but we had this gap in America, it's called the summer. And it basically is like three months long where, you know, it's, it's the American summer and, and, and everyone, you know, that's when everyone does all their holidays and all the trips and all the things. And, and so we, uh, we finished up at the end of the school year and followed God's lead to actually go and serve with a parachurch ministry that we'd been involved with for some time and lead a, like an extended mission trip kind of experience with a bunch of young adults and so we went and did this, and we did it kind of in the, under the assumption or the expectation that actually we'd get given like a koha or some kind of honorarium at the end of the summer as a result of doing this. Turns out we didn't, and so we went, went and served and following God's lead to go do all this, and we get three months down the line having drained all of our savings to then go follow God's call to further study. And so we show up in seminary um, out on the East Coast. We move, you know, with Evie's a young child. Iris wasn't born yet. And we move out to the East Coast and trying to get established and set up. And we're living in student housing, which was great. But the seminary uh, sent this notification that somehow I'd missed earlier that said, oh, by the way, we, we don't take rent on a month-to-month basis, which was the norm we need your whole semester's rent up front. We just drained all our savings. We had no money. We were like, what are we going to do? What in the world? Like, how are we going to do this? And I remember, like, like, it was tough. Things were really tight for us. We're like, God, we're following your lead. We're, fo- you know, how are we going to make ends meet? How are we going to get through it? We had to call in some help from parents, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was humbling. And, um, and, and, and through all of that, you know, uh, just awful awful season but it called us it, it led us to really depend on the Lord and cry out to God like it was an Elijah moment for us where we're like God we're following you we're trusting you we're doing the things that you but this brook's dried up the brook's dried up and look, look I know some of you I know some of the stories and 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 the lives that you've lived through and and many of you could do a much better job of talking about pain and hardship than I could um because You've, you, you're here and you've been continuing to live through monumental grief and loss and hardship and, and for some of you it's just, it, felt, it feels like maybe going from one dry brook to the next dry brook to the next dry brook. You lost your job and drained all your life savings and you're still waiting. You lost your marriage and you're lonelier than you've ever been. Maybe you lost your kids and guilt is ravaging your heart. Maybe you lost your health and along with it went your hope and your joy Maybe you lost your faith and rolled out the welcome mat for cynicism and resentment instead. Now hear me, friends. Not every dry brook that we face in life is the direct act of God. You need to hear me say that. 
not every dry brook we face is the direct act of, act of God. It's just not. Sometimes the dry brooks we face are the consequences or the results of our own decisions. Sometimes the dry brooks we face in life are the results of other people's decisions that do have an effect on us. Sometimes the dry brooks we face in life are a direct flaming arrow from the evil one who's trying to destroy you. But sometimes, friends, and this is where discernment's key, sometimes the dry brooks we face in life are the insertion of a little controlled trauma from the living God because He has something else in mind for you, something else in store for you. Sometimes it's the the loving hand of Yahweh who says, it's time for the rain to stop, the brook to dry up. So take a moment, friends, and just reflect in your own life, if you find yourself in that kind of a situation, could it be that the circumstances of your life right now are aligned in such a way to serve God's purposes for you? Could it be that? That He's trying to wake you up, to stir you up and capture your attention? Could it be that the painfulness of your life right now is God's way of asking you to soberly evaluate whether you, where you're at and whether you're going, uh, where you're going in light of what matters most in life? Could it be that the current hardship is actually an activator, a catalyst that's forcing you to choose whom you will ultimately serve, yourself or the God who gave, gave you life? I mean, I've got to believe. Remember, Elijah's human, just like you and I. I've got to believe that as he's sitting alongside that dry brook, he would have had a whole bunch of questions for the Lord, right? You can imagine what they would have sounded like. You can imagine, right? Like, Elijah's there like, come on, God. Who told me to come to this ravine in the first place? Uh, that was you, remember? Come on, Lord. Who was it that promised that I'd drink from this brook? This one that I'm sitting at now. That was you, Lord, remember? And I followed you. Here I am. God, who is it that even brings the rain from heavens? Oh, that's you, by the way. Remember, it's not Baal. You're the one who does that. And I'm trusting in you. I'm looking to you for provision, and you're not doing it. We all do this, right? I mean, you can see any of us doing this all the time. It's natural when things in our lives start falling apart and going badly. It's almost like our default posture is to begin obsessing over these kinds of questions like, well, who did this to me and why is this happening to me, right? And who did this to me is one where, because we love to find someone to blame. So we don't have to take responsibility. Like, we, wanna, we, wanna, we want someone to blame or, or why is this happening to me? It's, again, it's a way of thinking, if I, if I can just understand how this came to pass, then maybe I can figure out a way to get out of it on my own. It's a way of sidestepping the dependency and reliance on God. It's a way of sidestepping obedience in a lot of cases, if I'm really honest. Friends, it's natural to question by the dry brook. It's natural, it's normal. It's in, in a lot of ways, it's just being honest before God. And there's nothing wrong with that, but here's what is wrong with that. Notice Elijah didn't let his unanswered questions hinder his ongoing obedience to God. That's the difference. He didn't let his unanswered questions prevent him from continuing to follow God and obey God and choose God's way. In verse 10, you know, God had said, go to Zarephath and stay there. And then in verse 10, we see, so he went to Zarephath. So he went to Zarephath. Friends, here's the truth. Sometimes the only way to get us from the Kerith Ravine to the Zarephath is via the dry brook. 
Sometimes that's the way God works. Sometimes the only way to get us to open up to the next stage of obedience and the voice of God and the leading of God is a healthy dose of controlled trauma in our lives. And sometimes the only way to pierce through the pile of noise and distraction in our lives is through pain and heartache. Friends, what I think we learn from Elijah here is that when we face those painful and difficult situations in our lives, we shouldn't get hung up on the who did this to me and why is this happening to me kinds of questions. Instead, we ought to focus our attention on questions like, well, how do I respond now? What is God up to in the midst of this? How is God maybe shaping and forming me inside, oftentimes in ways that He wouldn't be able to do should I be sitting alongside the flowing brook? The truth is, I don't really, I, see, I, I don't think, uh, it doesn't really matter what the source of pain is in our lives. It's regardless of whether, we, whether it is God intentionally causing it or, or, or we're suffering because of the actions of another person or even maybe random chance. The truth is that God can and God does use those situations to wake us up, to stir us up, to shake off the slumber, to move us forward and to draw us closer to Him. And so we see in verse 10, Elijah went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you give me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? Very basic, simple request. And he was just essentially testing the receptiveness of this woman and says, as she was going to get it. So he goes, oh, this favorable response. He asks a further question, recognizing she is the one that God has sent him to. He says, as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. She responds, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Now, Zarephath was a really common popular trading post where, you know, exports of wheat and oil were massive out of Zarephath. So the fact that there was no wheat or oil available anywhere in town tells us the extent to which the drought was taking effect, right, and setting in. It was, it was dire. And she's there by the city gate, literally collecting a handful of twigs in order to make a fire to, uh, to, to bake a cake of bread. Uh, verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Don't you love it? God led Elijah on and opened a whole new way of provision. But here's the, here's the, here's the challenge, friends. A lot of times we get stuck by the dry brook. None of this would have been possible. I mean, I had a friend of mine, not a friend, a mentor of mine who often, one of his favorite quotes, and he often told me, you know, like in those wilderness seasons of life, Clint, when don't sin in the wilderness, you'll only be there longer, was what he said over and over again. Don't sin in the wilderness, Clint, you'll only be there longer. 
Don't sin by the dry brook. You'll only be there longer because the temptation by the dry brook is to sin in disobedience, to run from God, to blame God, to get wrapped up in feeling like the victim and victimized and, and, and all of these things. And, and, but the wise choice by the dry brook is to obey God, to obey Him, even if the questions remain unanswered. And if Elijah hadn't obeyed by the cracked and dusty, you know, Kerith ravine, he would have missed God at Zarephath and all the ways that God went on to provide. You know, and maybe he would have never made it to his huge kind of pinnacle moment on Mount Carmel in chapter 18, which turns out to be a defining point for him and his ministry and in the nation of, uh, of, of Israel as a whole. And we can, we can either follow Elijah's lead and humble ourselves before God, submitting to that shaping work of suffering and obeying in and through the question marks, or we can choose to roll over, hit snooze on that alarm clock, go back to sleep, sleeping in the comfort of blame or negativity or insecurity. And Look, friends, we all know Life is painful. It's not a question of if we'll experience it, but how we'll respond when we experience it. Will we receive and accept and process and embrace? See, see, if we receive and accept those things, like the hard things in life, the pain, and we, and we discern how God's using it and what He's doing in the midst of it, that's our way of leaning in and processing and following God in the midst of those difficult things. That's how we lean into it. That's how we grow through things rather than just stalling out and stopping, but continue to press in and seek God in the midst of it. If you read on through the end of chapter 17, you'll see that the woman's son actually dies and is brought back to life by Elijah. So over and over and over through this story, we see Elijah delivers this huge challenge to Baal, who's supposed to be the god of the rains and fertility, and, he, and yet he's, Baal is unable to provide for, throughout the land. Instead, God, Yahweh, provides for Elijah at the Kerith Ravine. God, Yahweh, provides for Elijah, the widow, and her son through the flour that does not run out and the jar of oil that does not get empty and then continues to provide and bring life. Remember, Baal's the one who's supposed to be the giver of life and, and the source of all good things. But no, it's, again, Yahweh. Again, this is all setting the stage for what's to come next week. But God's the one who's showing Himself further evidence of His power and sovereignty and all of this as the ultimate giver of life. And so, as I was praying on this uh, message for this week, I just had a sense this, this morning that there would be um, three different people that I think God really wants to meet and minister to this morning. Uh, and so, I just want to kind of like land, land this as we, as we head towards communion and responding to God uh, this morning. And, and, and the first one is, for some of you, Maybe, maybe this teaching actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, for, for a lot of you. You don't find yourself in a, you know, maybe you're in a flowing brook season of life and that's awesome. We celebrate that with you. That's great. We're happy for you. So just file this one away. Maybe bookmark this one on the podcast for when the dry brook season uh, comes and you need to revisit this down the track. Because uh, it's not a question of if, but when, you know, so maybe that's, maybe that's you. Look, if you, but if you maybe have been listening all this time and it didn't, the message didn't hit and, and actually um, didn't make sense to you uh, until the very end because for you maybe, I had a sense that there's someone here this morning who um, 
you feel like the widow in Zarephath, whereby there's been so many demands on you, demands on your time, on your energy, demands on your, uh, all this kind of stuff that you feel like actually my jar and my jug can take no more demands. They've been so depleted that they have nothing, I have nothing left to give every last drop emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, I've given it all, I've got nothing left to give and God says to you this morning, come, come to me with your current lot, come and see what I can do with that jar and with that jug. And the second uh, group of people maybe I think, yeah, maybe a group of people, uh, maybe you find yourself coming off a flowing brook season of life and you notice the brook is drying up and you're starting to feel worried and anxious. The brook is drying up, uh, you're coming off that and, and it seems like the ravens are drifting away and you're wondering how you got to this place, maybe in, in the midst of it and you're like, oh, you got all these questions, these frustrations, these, these things that are bubbling up and, and the same invitation is bring those to the Lord this morning. Come and bring those. He can handle your questions. He can handle your frustrations. Come and offer those longings and, and your hurts and come and bring it. But, you know, because uh, God's saying, I'm plenty big for the biggest of your questions. And I'm at work in the tearing down. Trust me. Come to me. Bring it to me this morning. And I think the third, the third group of people that um, this morning, I think God really wants to minister to in a a powerful way is those who maybe you find yourself alongside the dry brook and uh, it's it's dried up for some time and you've actually been stalled out there for some time and you've been focused on blaming how did I get here you know why is this happening to me and looking for a way to get out on your own and instead God this morning is inviting you to readjust your focus look back and remember the ways that God has and is present and providing and meeting you with comfort and care and love and His grace, that He he has been with you in and through it all, even though it's been hard, even though it's been painful, even though the brook is really, really dry, God is still with you and allow those reminders to grow the faith in your heart to Follow Him in the next step of obedience, even if the questions remain unanswered. And I think for some of you this morning, God wants to give you some of that faith. He wants to reframe that perspective and give, instill that faith in your heart and in your soul this morning. And so I invite Allison and the team, if you'd come and lead us through communion and responding to the Lord this morning, uh, that would be great. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for your presence with us, Lord, that you are at work in our lives. And I pray specifically over these three, three groups or three people this morning, um, Lord, I pray for those who feel like they've just given and given and given. They have nothing left. They feel empty. Lord, would you meet them? God, I pray miraculous provision in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would show up and fill their jug, fill their jar, that, Lord, you would glorify yourself and it would increase... Um, great confidence in you, that it would grow belief and trust, that would grow energy and strength, Lord, that um, you would glorify yourself. Lord, I pray for those who um, 
are feeling really anxious and uncertain because it seems like where you've led them, the, but the brook is drying up. They followed you here, but the, the, the brook is drying up and the ravens are drifting away. And, and, and God, what are you saying and what are you doing? Lord, in the midst of that uncertainty, Lord, would, would you assure them that you are with them? Holy Spirit, minister to each one, abiding sense of your presence and a peace that transcends understanding. And Lord, for those maybe who are by the dry brook, stalled out, maybe a bit stuck, God, I pray that you instill faith in their lives. Remind them of your provision and faithfulness in the past and give them faith to move forward, to follow you in obedience, that they might see future uh, provision opening up before them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.